coming through on the microphones. I can't put them outside because uh, apparently we've moved to Seattle because it's been raining for about four days straight. Yeah. <laughs> All day, every it, day. It's, it's been dark. It's fucking kill yourself weather. Yeah, it's pretty depressing stuff. I like to think of it as spooky season. Uh, that's gilding yeah, the, lily, the lily, perhaps, or making... A good thing out of a bad thing. I'm sorry. I Lemons out of, out of lemonade. Well. Yeah, we're um, uh, we're trying. <laughs> I've been uh, I've been taking a lot of vitamins like uh-huh. D3 and B12. Yeah, and magnesium because this time of year the sads start to come on when it gets dark. Yep. And uh, Erin was also hoovering those up last couple of days. She's like, they're not working because she she would buy like. Um, a specific brand of these D3 B12s. And uh, I guess they stopped making them or something, or she was getting them from Amazon. And I was like, well, how do you know it's like the D12, the, the B12 and the D3 that's making you all happy? I mean, it, these things are shipping probably from fucking Shenzhen and God knows yeah. what, what they're putting in the vitamins to, to make you all happy. It's probably you know? um, placebo effect plus whatever special yeah. stuff they stick in there. Fentanyl. Fentanyl, maybe. maybe. Seasonal defect. Seasonal defective. I have seasonal defective disorder. <laughs> I but think we're all a little defective this season. Se- seasonal affective disorder. You know, there's no clear sign of SAD. Isn't that funny? They call it SAD. Yes. Uh-huh. Somebody came up with that and was like, I am, I'm a genius. I'm a genius. I've made, I'm going to make millions. By Jove. Less, less sunlight and shorter days are thought to be linked to a chemical change in the brain and may be part of the cause of SAD. Melatonin, yeah. a sleep-related hormone, may also be linked to sad. How do you make a hormone? No, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and the worst months are January and February. Oh, Interestingly. So I shouldn't be having this problem in September. No. You're, this you, is just garden variety depression. This is just regular-ass depression. <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with um, school and the kids in school. Like, I, I have to say... When I was just focusing on work yesterday, so yesterday we had the Day of Atonement. It was Yom Kippur, so the kids were Congratulations. off. Yes, <laughs> and I was like, we're, uh, we didn't observe it per se, but many of the people I work with um, took the day, and my kids took the day, but I had to work. But when I got out of the house and I went to the, the office we have in Brooklyn to meet a, a new doctor, I even though it was raining and dark, I felt good. I was like... For one thing, <laughs> Brooklyn and Yom Kippur, there's nobody in the streets. Yeah, so must have been light traffic. No traffic, but I just was like, this is great. It was when I start to have to deal with all of the, the Michigas of school yeah. and the kids getting like this morning. I was running late and it's exciting and it's painful because there's so many things and there's no way you could do it all. Yeah. Effectively, anyway. Well, I realized that when I'm starting to think to myself, gee, I could use an office day. Like, yeah. I need to get out of the house. And, you know, and it's it's not like, you know, the summer everybody was around. Now, like, people are not around, right, all day. So you would think it would be a little easier. But it actually makes it worse because you just wander around the house looking for stuff to do. 
Like, and I, I used to like get on conference calls and like mop the kitchen floor while right. I'm doing a conference call, but everybody wants to do video now. Like uh, they all want to do fucking WebEx or any of the, yeah, or Zoom. So like, I can't do that. And I have to have my, you know, I have to have my work from home shirt hanging yeah. in there because I can put it on and I'm not wearing pants, but nobody knows that. Nobody Except knows. everybody's not wearing pants together. We're all sitting there without pants on. Dressed from the waist up. It's the weirdest fucking thing. Everybody When they knows. look back at history on this time, it's going to seem very strange to well, people. I noticed sales of pants are way down ever since. The are they? <laughs> Probably. It would be really interesting to look at suit separates and how they're selling. Like, <laughs> like are people buying are more up. jackets and shirts and less <laughs> pants? Wow. Yeah. See, the sociologist in me is fascinated it's by that. Fascinating. Fascinated by that. Maybe we should start the show. Yeah. Um, Isn't there a thing that you say? And we're back. <laughs> Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Ned X. I'm Mike R. And boy, do we have a show for you. Boy, oh boy. Today on RMA, we reconvene on this dark and wet morning as the leaves fall and the sky looms. It's a Recovery what? in the News special. <laughs> it's a, what? It's a Recovery in the News special. Oh, yeah. Uh... And we also catch up on all things suburbia, back to school, and generalized horror. You know, I hope you find it more interesting than we do actually living through it. Yes, and uh, all this and more today on a very, very special edition of RMA. And I'd like to say this episode is brought to you by Recovery in the Middle Ages Patreon. What is Patreon? It's a members-only subscription service feature. I'm just going to answer my own questions. I was like, wow, that, like we have a new sponsor? <laughs> this is it. Um, we got the Discord private chat. There's um, a That's bunch of- That's all you get. Yeah, well, there are video episodes. Uh, we have some interviews up there. Uh, but they're good. They're actually, it's, it's some worth it. It is worth the, um, the mug that you get, too. There's special mugs designed by my 12-year-old. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> it's, seriously, they're cool. This but it's great. I feel like we're doing a sober link ad. You might as well. It's <laughs> patreon.com slash recovery in the middle ages. Hi. How you doing? All right. Yeah. Came across a news ticker this morning. Uh, Do you hear about that cheese factory that exploded in France? I didn't. There was nothing left but debris. Ooh. <laughs> Your wife sent me a bunch of. Uh, the worst dad joke in the world or something. Those are funny. Yeah, they are I pretty funny. I was watching them last night and I'm like, this is good. Yeah. This is good. It's good. It's mm. almost as good as like, did you hear about the mathematician who's afraid of negative numbers? Mm-mm. He'll stop at nothing to avoid them. <laughs> yeah. It's like the guy who uh, invented Lifesavers. What about him? He made a mint. <laughs> uh, what about the pony that goes to the doctor? The pony goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, you look fine to me. What seems to be the problem? He says, oh, no problem. I'm just a little horse. <laughs> a little horse. I get it. Yeah, it's good. You see what I did there? Yeah, yeah. A little, because it's a pony. Yeah. love explaining jokes. It's twice as funny. Why did the golfer bring two pairs of pants? Why? In case he got a hole in one. <laughs> okay. Thank you, ChatGPT. Yes. I you're love you. Doing a bang-up job. <laughs> Bang up job. You'll have a, a job on the Tonight Show in no time. So I know we need to get caught up on a lot of Nat's life yeah, lately. It's pretty lifey. But uh, I got there's a couple things we should probably do beforehand. Yes. Um, do we have any soberversaries? Do we have soberversaries? Well, the, uh, the Munster Day I don't mean mother, to put you on the spot. We've only had two weeks to prepare. Yeah. <laughs> to prepare. Well, the, uh, <laughs> so, yes, we do have two soberversaries that... Uh, 
our den mother has provided for us. Thank you, Melissa. We have Chris L. with two years as of August 30th. Or Yay! Is that his sober date? Yay! Or, okay. Well, either way, it's great. Great. Whatever two you're years. Doing, That's keep, keep doing it. Huge accomplishment. And Charlie. Charlie. The Charlie's wharf the dad. Man. The dad of the wharf. Yeah. Six months kratom free. Woo! <laughs> Sorry, Wrong Charlie. One. Sorry, Charlie. That wasn't me. Uh, uh, yes. Going to see Charlie in uh, San Francisco. Yeah, in, I hear uh, there's some to do. November. In November, there's a. You guys are meeting up. Didn't the walk have to be kind of postponed, but we're still meeting? The There's walk still- in San Francisco, I keep wanting to say San Diego, but I don't want to send people to the wrong city. The, the walk in San Francisco was canceled because there's one in Dallas, and I guess Soberlink thinks there's, not Soberlink, Shatterproof, I guess, perceives that there's a bigger need in Dallas mm. than there is in San Francisco okay. or something. I don't know. Uh, or they're just spread too thin, like uh, butter on the toast thing that you used to say. Um, like butter scraped across too much toast. Yes. So uh, there is no walk, but what that does is it frees up Saturday for a, a ramble around uh, the city of San Francisco. We'll be dodging uh, piles of poop and, mm. <laughs> and uh, drug encampments and so forth. Well, that's um, fun. And then the Sunday, we're at Grant has uh, rented a van and we're going to Marin, Marin yeah, a white, a white van with no windows. one circular window maybe <laughs> that's blacked out? Uh, so everybody should get in there and let Grant drive us over to Marin County where we're going to walk through the Redwoods to Stinson Beach and then, I don't know, sacrifice somebody. That sounds great. <laughs> I don't know. Well, no, it'll be great. I'm really looking forward to it. I have not been to uh, Stinson Beach since 1989. Wow. That's where Jerry Garcia used to live with New Riders, Janis Joplin. They all lived down there. Cool. In so the it's late like 60s, a, early 70s, yeah. Sort of like visiting the home of Dr. Bob or Bill. No, Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob. I was in Akron, Ohio. For those of you that don't follow the Facebook uh, group. It's like going to Mecca. And why wouldn't you follow the Facebook group? Follow the Facebook group. Uh, just get a fucking Facebook profile just to follow Recovery in the Middle Ages. Because yeah. every like... Three or four weeks, we post something there. Yeah, no, it's it's, an, yeah. it's a good. No, there's people on there. It's cool. Um, yeah, I, I found myself in Akron, Ohio, and having nothing to do because it was Akron, Ohio. I drove to um, Doctor Bob's house, and Doctor Bob was you know with Bill Wilson founded Alcoholics Anonymous, and they've turned his house, which is in a it's really kind of a you know it's not a huge house considering he was a doctor you know i, I would have thought something a little a little bigger but humble i guess this is the 30s and who knows how much doctors made in the 30s cuz when they couldn't really cure anything i hate um, penny for each fever you cure yeah exactly or they bring him chickens or something but um i don't know modest home uh, they turned it into a museum. There are 12 steps from the street Aha. up to the front porch. You see? Um, 12? It, yes. I, ah. Yes. I, uh, <laughs> there was some lady bringing out her garbage, so I kind of waited in the car until like next door. So I waited till she left because she was eyeing me like, like what the fuck do these alcoholics <laughs> keep showing up at Dr. Bob's house? <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's on the National Register of Historic Places. It is a museum. I peered in through the front window, and it appears that they have restored it or kept it the way it was like back in the thirties. Um, wow. there's like a parlor room and stuff, but it wasn't open. I didn't go in. There was no <laughs> meet. I, I like had this fantasy. Like I'd, I'd run into an AA meeting on the front lawn or something. And I would be like, this is my first AA meeting since 1993. And, uh, and you could get into an argument with them about why it hasn't been so know. long. I'm not going to, I'm not going to 
shit on AA in, in the house of AA. <laughs> of you course know. not. Um, no, it was interesting. You know, I it's interesting seeing the humble beginnings of a worldwide movement like that. that yeah. has both helped and so hurt many. so many people. <laughs> I I hope it has helped more than it has yes. hurt. On a, on balance, I think it probably has. It has provided a social space for people with our affliction to gather together. And it's like the Starbucks of recovery or McDonald's. There's one in every town, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you go to McDonald's in Rome, you could still get a double quarter pounder with cheese. Hmm. You know, it's true, but it's made of better meat with less preservatives. One, one would hope. And in Iceland, you can find a McDonald's or Starbucks. So AA is the same way. You could be, just about anywhere and find an AA meeting. So it's um, ubiquitous. Ubiquitous, and that's good. It's good to have a touchstone in different cities. Now, you would think that, you know, I'd like to say that I, I got to Dr. Bob's house and I was so moved that I immediately went and contacted the intergroup in, the, in that area and tried, found a meeting. And instead, I drove around in a fruitless search for frozen yogurt for 45 minutes before I went back to my hotel and went to sleep. Did you find Froger? I did not. Mm. There's no frozen yogurt in the city of Akron. I've, Interesting. So. It used to be very popular. Well, that's fun. Yeah, it was okay. Uh, it was a work trip, and there was no drinking. So, well, that's nice. I, I went. I sent you a picture though from the bar. I was at, <laughs> I was at a bar in a restaurant because when you travel as a solo business person, they never want to give you a table because it's like they want to. Yeah, they just seat you at the bar. Yeah, they want to put people in tables who will leave bigger tips. Right. right? Like, All right, business guy, right. go sit at the so bar. So sit at the bar. So I sit at the bar and I asked the, the bartender who looked like she was about 16, but must have been over 21. I said, you know, That's do you have lie. any non-alcoholic beer? And she said, uh, no, but I can make you a mocktail. I can make you a um, Moscow mule without alcohol in it. Uh-huh. So I said, okay. I said, it's not too good, not going to be too sweet, is it? She's, and so we, then we had this debate about blueberry syrup and, for a while. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, just put in whatever you're going to put in. I'm not paying for it anyway. So they, uh, it came in the nice, you know, the cups yeah, they put like them in? it's like a copper. The copper vessel. Yeah. And I drank it, and it had mint and lime in it, and it was refreshing. It was $15. It was $10. Uh-huh. Which in Akron is a lot of money for, yeah. for, for a glass of soda. But. Yeah, New York money, that's $10,000. <laughs> It was good. I didn't feel at all tempted to drink. You know, I had a job to do. I did the job and I went home. And this is this is how it is for me now. I've I've crossed the Rubicon of having yeah. to worry about whether I'm going to want to drink. I just don't. Yeah, I've noticed that about myself too. Like we've gotten to a place in my, for a long time it was very contentious in my house about having alcohol and keeping me away from alcohol and and staying away from events with alcohol and and that was very good for me to do that. But we've gotten to a point where now my wife will even say, can you fill up my glass? Right. You know, and I'm like, fuck, well, I don't care. Like, it, it does not bother me. Or we... Uh, fill up my glass. Fill, could you give me a fill up? <laughs> you know, um, or I'm walking around, you know, filling up people's wine glasses at our house or something. But it's just, I really don't care. And for Noah's uh, 13th birthday that's coming up uh, October 24th, we got him surprise tickets to this asbury music festival yeah which was awesome and um it was cool because they we got to see there's a bunch of bands and it's all on a beach in new jersey which asbury park yeah some would know from the bruce springsteen record okay yeah so that's it it's and it's gorgeous and they built these huge stages and we camped out basically from about one o'clock to see um 
that band, uh, Cosmic Country, which yeah, I was telling they're really you, good. They, those guys are good. But even Noah, at some point, was like, "When is this song going to end?" <laughs> like we were looking at each other. Ah, uh, you guys are not jam band. Well, we're listening and we're like, "Wow, they're really talented." And that guy took a solo, and I'm like, "Man, that guy can really play." And then I'm like, "We're sitting there looking at each other, and it's like <laughs> looking at our watch. We're like, wow, that's." You know, when are they going to wrap this up? Like a chorus has got to like be a chorus, and you got to kick. It's just on and on, and they look tired, and they're playing, and you're like, you got to bring it to some kind of conclusion. And by the time they did, we were so exasperated with the repetitive chord progression that we wanted to tear our ears off. But they were they were very good, and uh, and then but the the Beach Boys appeared with John Stamos of all people. The Beach Boys did they wheel them out? Believe it or not, these mummies can sing. And, uh, <laughs> did they sound like the Beach Boys? Somehow they did. Huh. It was they must have it down a key or so, a couple of keys. They must, yeah. But they really was, it sounded like they were the records and Stamos can sing. Was, what's his name? Was Brian Wilson there? Brian Wilson was not there. Okay. It was like Mike Love was like the main dude, and then his son was singing a bunch of the uh, like the T Bird song and okay. a lot of the falsetto stuff as the yeah, kid. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was an excellent show. But the big one. Well, it was Weezer, which right. uh, if you know the Sweater song, Noah is a big fan of that that band. He loves it. Mm. He uh, plays those songs on his drums and his guitar and stuff. And then the Foo Fighters was the big one. Wow. So uh, it was a two-hour Foo Fighter extravaganza, and we were all the way up. And we're talking, there's about a 1,000 people. I have pictures of this. I should post it. Just like shoulder to shoulder, but we were up at the front against the gate. So we were right right in the rail, there. brother. But everybody had moved up, so we were like trying to hmm. keep ourselves from being like trampled. But it was an excellent show, and um, if uh, those of you know that Taylor Hawkins, the longtime drummer of the Foo Fighters, had died of a drug overdose. Right, he was fifty four. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was just um, probably the only drummer I could think of that would be able to play with Dave Grohl, who's one of the greatest drummers of all time. And so the guy they got to. Re- place quote-unquote taylor hawkins because i'm thinking who the hell are they getting to replace taylor hawkins the parts that they wrote are so intricate it's almost like progressive rock but not quite as bizarre right um so there's a lot of changing parts it's very precise rhythmic stuff and the guy they got he was the original drummer from devo he played in the nine inch nails records he's like he's like a legit right right and he was fucking amazing they had a I mean, you could just sit there and just watch the guy play the drums. I mean, mm. it was unbelievable. So it was a lot of fun. And Max had his first sleepover because he didn't want to come to this thing. Yeah. So at nine years old. So it was you and, and your wife. Just and the three Noah. of us. Okay. And it was a great time. But um, How late did you stay there? We spent the night uh, and came back the oh, next okay. morning. Like sleeping on the festival grounds in a pile? Yeah. <laughs> no, we got a hotel nearby, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And, and the 13th birthday, I call this as a Gentile bar mitzvah. So <laughs> you got to do this. And um, it was a lot of fun. And uh, school has been insane for, for the kids. But Noah got, Noah got the lead in the high school play, the, the one that he's Peter Pan and really? Peter and the Star Catcher. Wow. So he's got now like a serious play to study for. It's three hours after school, like three or four times a week. Wow. Not only that, he decided he wanted to join the cross-country team, which is absurd. Because Good for him, man. When is he doing that? But he... He's doing that. Isn't that every day they practice? Yeah, but he worked something out because he once he got the part. Yeah, you know the coach was just like, yeah, you can like audit the class type of thing. Like right, he can right. come run with them, and uh, you know Max is doing really great in his new fourth grade class, and 
just life just started happening, whether I was ready or not. You know, that's the way it goes. Ready or not, here it comes. So I'm sure a lot of you parents out there are are dealing with this too. Once once the ball starts rolling, it doesn't stop. It never stops. I was thinking yesterday. Literally yesterday, like I'm standing there, I'm looking outside at like a million things I have to do. And, you know, I put up a whole bunch of blinds over the weekend and I'm like, when did I suck in on that crack pipe, huh? <laughs> I love it. I'm like, what did, uh, when did I ever have time to do this when I was drunk? You know? Yeah. Yet, um, How? How did I do yeah. any of this? You know, I, I wake up at six o'clock and I'm like, huh, huh. <laughs> like what yeah. am I going to do first? Know. <laughs> you know? Five five a.m. I get up every day. Ugh, I, um, so I mean, uh, I had I did have a drug inter interlude. I guess no, that's not the right word. A drug interlude. I had a drug interaction. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I don't know if you know that Ben has keeps two mice. You know, the hamster escaped and it was never found. Oh, so, we never found the uh, the famous hamster. No, uh-huh. no. Remy is lost to time. He's uh-huh. making food somewhere for a French restaurant <laughs> downtown. Um, so he gets two mice to replace them. And of course, they're both males, so they start to fight. So now I have two giant cages <laughs> for two small mice in Ben's room. And one of them, like, I guess got some kind of a sore on his back leg and, you know, being a mouse uh, and not able to wear a little cone around its little head. You could put a cone it, of shame on the mouse. It just started, like, eating its leg and okay. stuff, right, to Naturally. scratch it. So yeah. I'm like, okay. How long can it do that until it dies and then we'll only have one mouse? <laughs> but Ben but Ben is like, I thought you, you know, the other day, he's like, I thought you were going to find a vet for the mouse. I'm like, fuck. So I, I Google small animal vet and I find one in Great Neck. I'm like, oh, great. How much could that possibly cost? So I call them up and they're like, it's $109 and you have to pay in advance. Of course. So I pay in <laughs> advance. For, I make a $109 vet appointment for a $7 mouse. <laughs> I, t- I take the mouse over there and it's, it's a really good vet. Like if you have alternative animals, I guess you call them, it's a great place. They do birds and everything fish but cats and, and dogs, right? Exactly. Yeah. Everything but cats and dogs. Um, so, but this weird, like, um, this weird vet tech comes in and she's got no emotional affect whatsoever. And so she, I'm trying to joke around with her and I'm like, it's not going well. So she's asking me all these questions about, the mouse's habitat and how it's what bedding we use and i'm like shit what's the right answer like i can't and then but ben of course is like he doesn't know like that there are wrong answers so he's just like "Ah, i change the bedding like once a month yeah i'm like oh (laughs) Oh, shit shit. but anyway so long story long not very interesting story short uh the vet finally comes in and she's wonderful person very knowledgeable does an examination and is like okay what we need to do is we need to give the mouse painkillers. Pain and I'm like, do you give oxy to mice? And she's like, she looks at me funny. She's like, no. Uh, <laughs> no, sir. We don't. Nice try. So um, <laughs> it was, uh, and, and an antibiotic. And she's like, it's very hard to dose these little guys because, you know, the, the amount of medication will get them, like, she's like, you want them to get, like, so high that they, like, don't pick at their leg. Right. <laughs> And I'm like, I've been that high. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I know the feeling. It's like, okay. I said, I, I, I know what we're going for. How do there. we get there? Yeah. And <laughs> so she gives me a prescription for a uh, prescription. When I say prescription, I mean she charges me $40 for a tube of some shit she brings out of the back. Right. Not a tube. It's like liquid and it's gabapentin. 
It came out of a red cooler. Have you ever heard of the- gabapentin? Yes, I have. This I have an, too. A it's drug like, of abuse. It is. It's yeah. like some kind of a nerve agent that mm-hmm. blocks pain. I've taken it. Have you? Not prescribed. I have some in the fridge <laughs> upstairs. Yeah. And I've been staring at this. And of course, the first thing I do when I get the thing and I see gabapentin on it is I Google gabapentin mm-hmm. and abuse, right? And of course, there's all these great stories. Yeah. About it. But uh, I, you know, I was never a, a painkiller kind of guy, so it didn't hold any... It's a weird one. Appeal to me. It's a weird one. You have to take like a thousand, you know, like a gram of it. It's like you have to take like twenty of the pills that they typically prescribe. It's it's, but the mouse pills are really small. Yeah, the no, they don't give pills. (laughs) Little pills, (laughs) tiny tiny little tweezer. Yeah, I I I, I went in there the other day and little cheese was chopping it up (laughs) with it with a piece of wood and trying to snort it. (laughs) Now it it was uh, is liquid. but I've had to do all this shit to try and get the mouse. The mouse doesn't want it. Unlike humans, if a mouse smells like something that smells like a chemical, it doesn't think, I, if I put this in my body, it's going to make me feel better, right? You have to, like, disguise it. In my case, I disguised it in almond butter and smeared it on a Cheerio. Oh. And it ate it. He went for it. He went for it. But this was only last night after four days of trial and error. They're like, you're supposed to pick it up in a, in a, in a fleece and make, like, a mouse taco and then shove the syringe in the mouth's mouse's mouth jesus i can't do that how plus it bites me if i try that it sounds bitey it's a bitey mouse it's bitey i mean you'd be bitey too if you had a large running sore on your leg that somebody kept trying to grab yeah so anyway anybody wants to come over i got gabapentin in the fridge (laughs) liquid gabapentin (laughs) liquid gabapentin put it in his eyes enough to get oh shit is that a thing can you do that that's a great idea well that's what they do with l you know i was listening to i forget i think it was on dopey they talk about putting LSD in your eyes, like the droppers. You know, yeah, I've heard yeah, I haven't people, listened uh, to that episode yet, but yeah, yeah, I saw that too. That's so, interesting. Uh, wow, holy shit. Should I is drop that the gabapentin in the mouse's eye? I mean, I'm not a vet, but uh, it sounds good to me. What do you guys think? Should I, should I eye drop the gabapentin in the mouse's eye? It sounds cruel to me. Uh, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I had to go on Reddit and be like, how do you dose a mouse, right? <laughs> and well, people have all these things. That one of them are like, you should just squirt it on its, like, on its chest, and then it'll try and wash it off with its little hands, and it'll get it in its mouth. What about rectally? <laughs> Is that? Can you give? <laughs> Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> All right. Well, that's mouse. enough mouse tails. Mouse huh. tails. Uh, so we got a. You want to hear a Google Voice? Oh, we mail? got a voice voice. I got a couple. A voice. Remember, American Dave in London called in a few weeks ago, but he sounded like he was on a starship in like a different part of the yes. solar system. This is him. Be- before this is Dan, uh, Dan uh, an American Dan in London. American Dave in American London. Dave and Dan, London. Right. Got it. Dave. Hello, my friends. It is American Dave in yes. London, or just call me Dave or David. Um, I hope you guys are well. Uh, funnily enough, I listened to the podcast while I was in New York um, for a couple of weeks seeing the family, which was very nice. Um, absolutely keen to meet the monsters, meet all of you, have a chat. Um, on October 17th, it will be seven years. Um, I know we're supposed to not look too far ahead, but you know what? I can do what I want because I am human, and I'm going to make sure that I get to that seven years. Um, but honestly, it's a nice long story. I'd love to have a chat with you guys. Um, you can call me anytime. Um, obviously, it'd be probably easier to reach out through Messenger, and then we can communicate that way. Uh, but yeah, happy to arrange anything, anytime. Um, and tell you where I'm from and what I'm about, and hopefully I can help someone out. So be well, 
And I'm actually off to an AA meeting now. Um, don't go too often, but I try to keep it consistent because it helped me in the beginning and it probably still does. But, you know, anyway, we'll have a chat. Anyway, once again, be well, be good, stay sober, stay clean, do what you have to do. And um, I look forward to speaking with you soon. American Dave in London. Wait, there's more. Wait, there's more. Hi, guys. It's David again. Did uh, I just say October 17th would be seven months? I didn't mean that. I meant October 17th would be seven years. And I don't remember that coming out of my months, mouth. Seven years. Anyway, uh, I look forward to speaking to you guys. Be cool. Bye. So I think what American David is doing is setting up a... Uh, a Meet the Monsters. Meet the Monsters. You know, that was a, a, a highly regarded part of the show that we've just sort of let disappear. We didn't exactly let it disappear. It took a brief hiatus for the summer vacation. And oh, right. we are back. So um, I feel like, though, didn't we, we had Brian coming on and then that got canceled. Yeah, we got to, we got to, we should, you know, we get back, jump back on the discord and rustle up some monsters and then we will get to American Dave. Uh, thank you, David. And congratulations on soon to be seven years on October 17th. Yes, and thank you for calling the RMA hotline. You too can hear yourself. You can. And you can inspire thousands by calling 516-888-6297. Leave us a message, something like what Dave just did. Yeah. Um, say right. hello, and uh, the Monsterverse would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you. And you can pitch us a Meet the Monsters episode if you like. <laughs> Yeah, and if you don't feel comfortable coming on and doing a whole Meet the Monsters episode, you can leave uh, three minutes worth of your story on the hotline and we will play it on the air and you will get all of that exposure without having to put yourself out there for nitpicking questioning from Nat and I. Yeah, and you can do like an accent or a voice if you don't want to be discovered, you know. We try out your Australian accent. That could always be funny. If you have one. Yes. If you don't have one, you don't have to. Or you could just say... You don't have to do it in an Australian accent. You could say, crikey, at the end. Crikey. That will, that will count. Wow, I never started the, the board, not, board recorder. All right. I well, got it on the thing. It's on the computer. I'm going to start it on that. Bing bong. There we go. Um, so uh, those of you that have been following the show for some time, perhaps record, recall our episode with Alan... Yes. From a few weeks ago. Was that before the... The wizened one. Was that before the vacation? Yes. Yeah. yeah anyway, so, um, you know, Alan's big on the Discord, and, you know, he was the sort of the caretaker for his for his mother. Uh, Alan lives in New York City, and uh, so, you know, we've, we've grown accustomed in the Discord to hearing tales about Alan's mom and, um, you know, her... Her, you know, her doings and various, you know, adventures, yeah. <laughs> various adventures in New York City as, as an elder person. And uh, unfortunately, a couple, couple of weeks ago, Alan's mom passed away. And, um, uh, you know, we, we certainly, you know, our hearts go out to Alan and his, his family about that. And, uh, you know, we sent Alan a little box of uh, Katz's yeah. meat. Because what else can you do yeah. in these situations? Yeah, it's, you got to keep eating, right? You just I mean, keep that's, eating. That's the thing. Uh, and uh, so Alan called the hotline to leave us oh. a thank you. So I figured I, I would play that so folks get to hear it. Okay. Mm -hmm. right. The wizened one. Yeah, hi. <laughs> I know that voice. Um, this is Alan. Alan Bilski from um, RMA. And uh, I just want to thank you guys, um, Mike and Nat, um, for the catches delivery. I, I can't tell you how much uh, that uh, blew us away when, when we saw that box there. Um, 
And um, I just want to thank everyone, um, you and um, the, the whole Monkster um, Discord community. Um, you guys are the best. And I, I appreciate your kindness and your thoughts um, through this time. And um, you have definitely, you have all definitely um, helped me um, and, and our family through this. And um, we had the funeral today. It was great. It was wet. It was raining. It was pouring. Um, we, we had um, UN New York City gridlock alerts. <laughs> we we had we had to uh, take circuitous routes, um, but it, it was just my mom getting one last um, shot in, <laughs> uh, and it was great. It was nice. It, I saw the family. Um, everyone is doing well, and I will. Um, I'll I'll catch you guys in the next one. So just my love to everybody, and uh, um, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye. Yeah, Alan, uh, it's tough to lose a parent. You know, I, I lost both of mine uh, within the last 10 years, I guess. And uh, yeah, it's tough. And it's it's a good reminder that, you know, sober sobriety, you know, doesn't mean everything is picture perfect, right? I mean, what you get back is life. And sometimes life can be a bitch. And uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's one of, you know, Alan uh, has become a real friend and just like so many of uh, the monsters, you know, and, um, you know, we're here for you, buddy. We love you. And it's just it sucks to see anybody go through that. But you're a real mensch and to be able to be there. And I was telling this to one of my other friends who um, recently lost his parents, you know, his elderly parents. It's the fact that he was sober for, you know, the last few years to be able to to care for them yeah you know because um i think back to when my parents were on death's door they had a horrific car accident back in 2012 and i was not in good shape mm. my mother was in the hospital and my father they were both in the hospital for a while and i remember feeling so disappointed in myself like god i hope this is not when they go because i wanted them to see you know me reach more of my potential so the fact alan that you were able to you know be that um be there for her and and that's the real blessing of recovery, I think, in, th in those situations, to be there for your family, to be the person you're meant to be, and to be a real mensch. So, you know, hearts go out. I hope you enjoy the cats's, because I know I would. And I'm fearing, I, I have this looming anxiety over my parents now, because they're getting to that age where they're not ill or anything, mm -hmm. but my mother's turning 80, my father will too. And, um, you know... I'm 46 years old, and I guess this is when these things start to uh, start to go down. Yeah, it's it's alarming, yeah. you know, really, because you know, I my uh, my wife's dad is was diagnosed with cancer uh, probably about a month ago. And right, so you've been dealing with this a dealing lot. Dealing with lately. that, he's actually going in for surgery today, uh, this morning. So uh, right, you know, fingers crossed that all. Yeah. Out well, fortunately, it's a treatable type, but there are some potential complications because of where it is. But, uh, you know, and it's it's rough, man. I mean, life just keeps going on. And, yeah. You know, the world <laughs> keeps spinning. <laughs> so you can choose to, you know, medicate yourself and put some distance between you and the struggle of day to day existence or, you know, like the Buddhists do just embrace it as just part of the, the flow of the universe and just, you know, fully be present for all of it. And to me, 
you know, having done both, I find being fully present for everything to be so much more of a, it's, it's harder, mm. but it's more rewarding in the long run, I, I find. Yeah, and, and the more I've learned about Buddhism through this show, really, and you, the more I identify with, with it, like, as far as there's neither good nor bad, there just is, and things that happen are just, they just are. Mm-hmm. It's not happening to me, it's not happening for me, it's just happening. Yeah. And it gives you a sort of, once you really internalize that kind of philosophy, it makes um, the thorns of life sort of stick less, um, you know, and it's kind of like, it's still painful, but it's it's hard to explain. It's this equanimity with the universe that, you're, I guess that's the point, is you're trying to be, have this oneness with everything. It's so much of uh, letting go of acceptance. your desire. It's all, it's so much acceptance yeah. because once you really realize that nothing is forever and the nature of the world is impermanence, not to get all like airy fairy. Yes, you know, but, but it is you know, true. It, but everything passes, you know, away and in its time. And, you know, the, the, the more you can accept that that's just a reality, the better. And I think a lot of, you know, those of us who were, medicating and trying to put some distance between ourselves and reality. It's just, it's hard to accept that, you know, you can't control anything. The world is the way the world is. And, you know, it's not, to, not to mean you like roll over and take it up the ass all the time. But you do your best, but, you know? Yeah. And you exactly. go easy on yourself when right. you don't reach whatever imagined goal you had. But as my father would say, None of us is getting out of here alive. No. And he was right. No. Still is. Eventually, all of the mysteries of the universe will be solved for you when you drop dead. Yep. (laughs) So. And you'll know it all. You'll be like, oh, that's what mosquitoes are for. (laughs) That's the first thing. I want the answer. What are the mosquitoes for? Well, it's all about knowing better. And when you know better, you do better. I do it. You do. But sometimes doing better depends on what tools are available to you. Mm. What tools are available? Uh, That doesn't go there, that question. Oh, sorry. It's okay. (laughs) I can't. I'm trying. (laughs) I'm looking at this and I'm like, it can't top the last reading. So why even try? As two men in recovery from (laughs) alcohol use disorder, we know how difficult it can be to seek help for a disease that's so stigmatized. 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 I'm thinking thinking like uh, Biggie. Hypnotized. Oh, yes. Stigmatized. You're more of a rap fan than me, I think. No, I'm really not. You're you're very into the hip hop. I'm not. You know what? I'm going to rewrite the Soberlink ad as if it's. Biggie's, what's that? Yeah, you should. Yeah, yeah. okay. Make it, make it a wrap. Make it a wrap. I can have ChatGPT do it, actually. <laughs> could do a cold read. It'd be great. If you're struggling to get sober, uh, Soberlink can help. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system was specifically designed to help you in your recovery, not just some breathalyzer you buy at the store. That, that line always sticks in me because, like, I've never seen a breathalyzer I can buy at the store. You, have you would to, think they would be at 7-Eleven next to the chips at, at, for 2 a.m. Like, oh, I'm going to get a breathalyzer. You can get them. It's <laughs> usually at like head shops and things. Oh, really? Yes. If you, so everyone out there, if you want a, a breathalyzer, go to like No, don't go there. Shops. Fucking buy it from Soberling. I mean, right. Soberling. <laughs> I was about to say, do not buy it at a head shop. Those are the ones you don't want. Boy, this is a... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, small enough to fit in your pocket and discreet enough to use in public or in front of your kids. That could be a vibrator too, right? Yeah, yeah. sure. Small- <laughs> <laughs> Although don't use that in front of your kids. Soberlink no. devices combine facial recognition, tamper detection, and real-time results. 
So friends and family know instantly that you're having a good time, <laughs> that you're sober and working towards your recovery goals. Uh, the system would have been a game changer for Nat and I during early recovery when every bit of accountability helps. Yeah, I really can't think of a better tool for tracking and sharing progress and rebuilding trust and relationships. I agree. That's you. That's me. That's not. It's a really bad impersonation of you. Yeah. Make 2023, or at least what's left of it, a memorable one. There's no time like the present to get started. If you've been fucked up all year, Soberlink will still give you $50 off your device. Visit www.soberlink.com slash middle hyphen ages to sign up and receive $50 off. And then it's $50 off. 50 bucks and Mike will middle hyphen your ages. <laughs> your device. I still don't understand what that means. What? Your device? No, I, I, know where, <laughs> I know where my device is. I just don't know why I'm going to hyphen someone's ages. You're going to hyphen their ages. It doesn't make sense. That's why it's senseless. It makes no sense whatsoever. So, sober link. So, this is how I would imagine how this would have worked for me back in the day. So, I got sober and when I finally committed to it and I was finally doing the right thing... I had fucked up so many times and lied to my family so much that it didn't matter that I was doing the right thing. They just didn't believe me. Right. So for a little bit, and everyone out there who's been through that, you remember, you know, I swear I'm, I'm not drinking and they don't believe you. Well, this is your chance to be like, see that? Fuck you. I am sober, <laughs> assholes. It's right here, right on this sober thing and bam. So... Think of it that way. Like, this is you showing everybody, here's your proof. They have to believe it because it is so locked down, and it's, it's, really, um, it's a real help when you're trying to gain the trust back because, let's face it, we lost it for a reason. Soberlink, you are a go-fuck-yourself device for friends and family. <laughs> Tell your family to fuck themselves with this new sober device. So today, we have a very special... Recovery in the news, right? Are we doing that? Yeah, we're, we're not, not doing, doing that. that. Why do I even still have that? Well, I can't let go of it. No. That's why. What was that one? Smoke weed every day. Yeah. That one too. Remember this? This is like yeah, you got some good ones. kicking it old school, as they say. So I'm supposed to be looking for, um, I know what I'm looking for. <sighs> yeah, all right. Recovery in the news. Recovery in the news. Recovery. Recovery in the news. Motherfucker. Yeah. 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 All right. Okay. I don't like the Foo Fighters, by the way. Yeah. I think they're boring. Hmm. I'm sorry. You like them? Um. There's a bunch of really great songs where when I listen to the Foo Fighters, I listen to it from like a, a perspective of, man, that's a cool riff. I wish I had written it. Okay. And, oh, that's an interesting, like he does really unpredictable things in a predictable setting. Like it's rock and roll music, but the changes are really smart mm. and he's like painting with different colors. That's mm. why I like it. Okay. I'm not like overwhelmed with like, oh my God, that was the greatest song. Right. Sometimes there's a few. There's a couple. But yeah. I love the way he performs and the musicianship on those records is actually I mean, he seems like a super nice human being. Oh yeah, he's you totally know? down to earth. Um, um, not like I met him, but anything I've observed of him, right. like he's a great front man. Yeah. Like that guy ran that show. He was everything on stage. It was amazing to watch him work a crowd that size. Yeah. Like he was talking directly to to you the guy's just so talented and the whole band even pat smear who like came on as a nirvana's like rhythm guitarist 
uh, and then followed the Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. And he's excellent. I mean, they're just all amazing musicians. It so. just makes you wonder what Nirvana could have been if everybody got clean. And I have unpopular theories about what Nirvana would have been, so I will keep those to myself. Why would you keep them to yourself? Well, because if they're unpopular, they're very that unpopular. will create controversy. You controversy not, will create more listeners. So I don't have popular views on that. You don't like Nirvana? It's I love Nirvana. Okay. I just didn't think that their trajectory was a good one. Just based on <laughs> where Nirvana's Nevermind went, it went then they did Incesticide, which was all covers, which I liked. Mm-hmm. And then when they did that magnum opus in utero with the famous Steve Albini mm-hmm. uh, producing with that song, you know, Rape Me was one of their quote-unquote hits, the singles, I thought was just like a tired retread of... Really? ...of the... Um, of never, oh, what was that song? Freaking famous one, Teen Spirit. And well, I mean, that that's so true to form for Kurt to rip off his own stuff. It though, just isn't wasn't it? like I just didn't think like in the what was it in utero? It was like a pretty good record, and there was like real bright spots, but it didn't feel like the writing had improved. Yeah, it was like kind of a, a weak sophomore effort, and I was just thinking like. The third album, would it have been that great or would it have just been like a horrific disappointment? Kurt Cobain was a really good songwriter, but not like the most proficient guitarist. Right. Um, That was part of the appeal. But like, how far can that go? I don't know. I just feel like... One assumes you get better at playing the guitar as time goes on, especially if you're not on heroin all the time. But he was. But maybe he could have gotten into recovery. I just feel like the Foo Fighters kind of took the music and... Made it like. But did Dave Grohl write any Nirvana stuff? That's a good question. I don't know the answer. Yeah. I know he was singing all of those backups. And now we've lost the audience. <laughs> um, and that. I don't know because I, you know, I listened to an interview on some podcast. Maybe it was Dopey or something with some woman who used to run into to Cobain and all these heroin like yeah. places like to score. Could just be there like. Yeah, just hanging out. I just yeah. don't think that the music was getting better. I don't know. I don't know. He was deteriorating. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe that's it. But I mean, you look at a lot of bands, like they have sort of an irregular trajectory. It's not like they get better and better with every album. Yeah. With the exception of Steely Dan. I know Stone Temple Pilots' second album, Purple, was like, okay, now we're getting better. Right. Getting somewhere. I have to tell you, it took me like 20 years to appreciate Nirvana. I really didn't like them at first. Well, that that Nevermind record is just perfect i mean it's in so many ways so many great songs anyway really lost the audience so uh speaking of (laughs) heroin (laughs) i guess um something happened in new york city a couple weeks ago that kind of brought the fentanyl issue and what to do about drugs in general enforcement treatment and so forth sort of back into the public eye not that it ever really left but I, i i i guess after you know, um, the oxy stuff went down, um, you know, fentanyl just sort of became woven into the fabric of society. But, mm. um, and in New York city, you didn't really hear a lot about it. it we don't have a Kensington. Mm. We don't have like a, a Portland, right, right? Where there's these giant open air drug situations going on. Uh, but, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, one kid, at a daycare center, died. Yes, really and, horrifying. And two story. other kids were taken to the hospital in, in critical condition, uh, and it was determined that they had been exposed to fentanyl at the daycare center. And I guess the daycare center was sort of a front 
for a major fentanyl dealing operation that was going on in that neighborhood. Right. And it's caused a bit of navel gazing um, among New York City um, nonprofits, New York City law enforcement, New York City government about what to do uh, with the fentanyl crisis in New York, such as it is. Um, What's interesting is, um, so this took place in the Bronx, like the Bronx yeah. right? And which was also the epicenter of the crack epidemic in the 1980s. And as I was, so the, an article in the New York Times came out a couple of days ago called A Daycare Death and the Dilemma Over How to Crack Down on Drugs. Now, that already presupposes that cracking down is the answer, Right. Right. Um, what is cracking? What does that mean exactly? What when they say cracking down, does that just mean stop and frisk, arrest everyone with a who and, looks suspicious? Well, or? and that that's a good question because um, the city officials told the residents in the area this area called Kingsbridge, and I'm familiar with the Kingsbridge Road underpass because it was a place where crack was sold. Uh, in some volume back in 1987 to 1990. And when I saw the neighborhood, I was like, huh, I scored drugs in that neighborhood 30 some odd years ago. And while it seems that the drug has changed, it doesn't seem like anything in that neighborhood has really changed significantly since then. And so I went back to the New York Times archives and I pulled up an article from 1987. Yeah. Um, which talks about uh, crack use in the Bronx. And these two articles, when you put them side by side, one is called, uh, right, A Daycare Death, How to Crack Down on Drugs. And the other one is called, After Three Years, the Crack Plague in New York City Only Gets Worse. If you read these two side by side, uh, they could have been written by the same author. Or ChatGPT just found that article and spun it for the new variable. Uh, God, that's a, that's a depressing thought. Uh. But uh, yeah, I guess the reporter could have like went back into his own archive and just pulled a drug article and, and changed the thing. But what I found interesting was um, the article from the current day cites that, um, you know, 3,200 deaths citywide uh, from overdoses in 2022. Um, that's a fairly significant number when you consider that people didn't really overdose a lot on crack. Um, right. So a, a more equivalent statistic to look at was how many people were killed in New York City as a result of right. drug use and gang violence and all that kind of stuff tied to the drug trade. And in 1989, the murder rate in New York, there was 1,867 people died. Jeez. So there are more people dying of overdoses in New York City now than were murdered during a year in the crack epidemic Right. Where's the uproar? Where is the uproar? And if you recall that in 1989, the city spent $500 million in, in one year on drug-related enforcement alone, um, which is more than twice the amount that it spent in the years before the crack epidemic. Uh, and it did nothing yeah. uh, to, to, to reduce the crack epidemic in New York. Uh, it doesn't really say how much they spent on um, trying to to do something about the fentanyl situation in New York. Um, but the approach is a little different because back in the, in the, in the eighties, right. In this article, 
Um, they talk about the homicide rate. They talk about the number of cocaine users doubling. They talk about uh, a tripling of the cases in which parents under the influence of drugs abused or neglected their children. And the solutions that they have, or they were citing back in the 80s, were pretty much all uh, interdiction and... Um, increase in police officers. That's when they started the tactical narcotics squad and all this stuff. Almost nothing about treatment um, in, in the 80s. It was all like militarizing the police. They were really like posturing the police as like going to war. It was a war on drugs and that meant a war on people addicted to drugs, basically. Yes. And they just basically stuffed the jails full of people. I mean, in, in 1985, when crack became a threat in New York, the city's jail population was 9,000 people. And then the next year it went to 11,000. And then the next year it was 12,000. And the next year it was 15,000. So Jeez. they just kept stuffing, you know, people in jail. And not all of these people, uh, I assume, were, were crack dealers, uh, you know, because you could get caught with, um, you know, five vials of crack in your pocket and that and it, was felony crack. It was like exponentially like longer jail sentences than powder cocaine. I think that, that was something that we talked about um, previously, the discrepancy between powder cocaine um, minimums for sentencing and then the crack because it was disproportionately targeting um, communities of color because that's where the crack epidemic seemed to be... Uh, you know, growing the fastest. Right. Um, I mean, the Koch administration in the 1989-90 fiscal year, uh, you know, wanted to convert one of two prison barges to a 400-bed inmate drug care center. So the assumption was they would be inmates, but would receive some sort of drug care on this boat. Uh, <laughs> it's a cruise. In the harbor, <laughs> right? Um, cruise to sobriety with Mayor Ed Koch. And then they talk about um, <laughs> they talk about how there had been some success in weaning addicts from crack through such drug-free programs as acupuncture and residential centers that seek to modify behavior, but a substance to help relieve the addict's desire for the drug, as methadone does for heroin, had yet to be developed. Which, interesting, right? Because it seems like with the fentanyl situation, we have a drug, right? Yeah, um, I mean, I have heard that Suboxone is not strong enough necessarily to treat the fentanyl withdrawals, but I don't have good um, research on that. But I have heard that anecdotally from fentanyl addicts that they say, yeah, I, I got Suboxone, but it's it's not making it better. I mean, I don't know if that's true. Mm. Have you heard that? That the, I, they, they may need heavier doses, but um, it is out there, you know, to treat these kinds of cravings, even Vivitrol or... Uh, naltrexone. A lot of naltrexone talk has been going on the uh, on the Facebook group. People asking about it, and, yeah. and that's coming up. I mean, the um, you know Vivitrol and taking the pills to curb your uh, ability to get high and so forth. But yeah, now we have something that could potentially treat that. Um, it's it's interesting though. Like you look at uh, they interviewed the district attorney in Manhattan in the nineties uh, in the early nineties and uh, Liz Holtzman, and she said that she was they were talking about tactical uh, TNT that the tactical narcotic squad about their, their 
putting this forth as the solution to the crack epidemic is just arresting more people. Right. Machine guns. Right. And and she said that the, the, the TNT's potential would not be realized until the city increased its outlays to the district attorneys. Uh, she complained that while the police were receiving $116 million for TNT, the city had allocated less than $10 million for prosecutors uh, and legal aid attorneys in the five boroughs. So, um, so basically they were going out and, and throwing money at enforcement without having anything in the background to back it up or to actually change any underlying situation that mm. led to this problem in the first place. Right. Right. Which kind of similar to what hap- what's happening in Oregon now with proposition 110, where they like the opposite, where they legalized everything and then gave no money to, to <laughs> for treatment or anything. They go just, ahead and yeah. smoke crack, but that's all we're doing. But, um, but in New York, they're taking a different approach now than they did in um, in the 80s with crack, just because I think they saw that it was a colossal waste of money mm. and didn't really work all that well. Um, you know, you had the war on drugs in the 70s and 80s, which was basically a zero tolerance approach, but it also led to the incarceration of millions of, of people for nonviolent offenses. Um you know, and, and while the overall number of cocaine users declined during those years, the amount of drugs consumed stayed the same, and the amount of teenagers who tried illicit drugs actually rose. So New York passed a couple laws to address civil rights concerns in the aftermath of um, the crack epidemic, including one, uh, this is well in the aftermath of the crack epidemic, in 2019, that significantly increased the amount of paperwork that had to be done after drug arrests and gave prosecutors a shorter time frame to hand evidence over to the accused. Then in 2021, the governor signed a law decriminalizing the sale and possession of hypodermic needles and expanded the number of crimes in which those charged were eligible for diversion to drug treatment programs instead of prison which was another signal to law enforcement that while possessing a small quantity of illegal drugs remains a crime, street use in some ways had essentially been decriminalized. And then you add that with the state bail reform laws, Mm. right, in 2019, which have been a huge source of contention. Yeah. Um, And it allowed people accused of low-level drug crimes to return to the community shortly after their arrest. So the problem is it doesn't seem to be helping. No. All of these, I mean, you have, you have safe injection sites. So we, we, where you are helping is you are preventing and reversing overdoses. You're still yeah. getting 3,200 people a year who are dropping dead of overdoses in New York City. Yeah, even, even with that mitigation. Yeah. Mm. Um, so even the police are like, we, we're not looking to take drug abusers and put them in prison. We want them to get the help that they need. Um, you know, uh, are they getting the help that they need? Doesn't appear that way, um, and, and what is the help that they need from the perspective of you know this um, the police? What what is it that they? Uh, well, they need some kind of treatment, right? Some kind of treatment, but you know, it, if there's a state run, like if they're going to tell people they must go to treatment, they also have to have something to give them bingo a way to point them in some direction that isn't just go for it search on google you need resources you need to put the resources in right um i mean how do you curb an epidemic that kills thousands of new yorkers makes neighborhoods unlivable for thousands of others without reverting to aggressive crackdowns which many leaders and public health experts have said led to civil rights abuses and did not effectively curb drug abuse um, I don't know 
how you do that because unless you deal with the structural issues behind it, and I feel I sound like a broken record because every time I talk about the fentanyl crisis, drug addiction, it, it's always you know unless you you simultaneously address the issues of um, housing insecurity, food insecurity, just b- meeting basic needs of people. Mm-hmm. You know, you can take them off the street. You can get them into a program, and once they're out, then what? Then what? It's you know? sort of the same problem you get after you know felons are released from prison, and they go, "Okay, go rejoin society. You've been rehabilitated." But it's extremely difficult to do that when you don't have any resources. Maybe they don't have a place to stay, and um, on top of it, they look for jobs and. You know, they've got a felony on their record, and it's it's just really wishful thinking, I think. It is. Um, and what's interesting to me is that this article on the, the daycare center and this seeming inability or paralysis of analysis going on in New York about what to do. Paralysis of an, wait, no, analysis paralysis. <laughs> about what to do, um, you know, is sort of... Uh, played out in Oregon, right? I mean, the Oregon has taken, New York is taking steps down the path that Oregon took two years ago with Proposition 110, right? Mm. So, you know, in the past two and a half years, Oregon has been trying this experiment, right, to to stem the soaring rates of addiction and overdose death by, you know, people who are caught with small amounts of illicit drugs for personal use, including fentanyl and methamphetamine, are fined at just $100. Mm. And uh, that sanction can be waived if they participate in a drug screening and a health assessment. And the aim is to reserve prosecutions for large-scale dealers and address addiction primarily as a public health emergency. Now, this is an article that came out in the New York Times three weeks before the fentanyl one. And it's called Scenes from a City That Only Hands Out Tickets for Using Fentanyl. Mm. And so Measure 110 was approved by almost 60% of Oregon voters in November 2020. Um, The pandemic had already emptied downtown Portland of workers and tourists, but the street population started growing, especially after the anti-police protests that spread around the country that summer. And within months of the measure taking effect, open-air drug use long in the shadows burst into full view with people sitting in circles or parks, leaning against street signs, smoking fentanyl crushed on tinfoil. Um, and so, so you, you try all of these harm reduction methods, you try these, um, you know, decriminalization, but let me tell you something. If you give somebody a hundred dollar ticket and say, call this number and we'll waive the ticket and you're a fentanyl addict, is that enough of an incentive for you to pick up the phone and be like, you know what? I really don't want to pay this hundred dollar <laughs> ticket. Maybe I'll risk withdrawal by calling this number, you know? Yeah. I mean, is that, am I alone in seeming that that is an in, insanely... It's wishful uh, thinking yeah, once again. It's, it's, it's like it's somebody like, who came up with that idea who doesn't understand drug use at all. Yeah, well, all they need is a number to call. And it's like, they're not going to not only not pay the ticket, they're not going to call for help, most likely. And that's going to be it. They're going to continue to offend and reoffend, And you. it's just very much like wishful thinking, let someone else deal with it. Like, we've done our part. We're not arresting them anymore. Uh, let them do the other part. And clearly this is, it's not working, I'm assuming. It's not working yet. Um, so uh, the or- Oregon's overdose rates have grown. Uh, you have 
tent cities in downtown Portland. I've seen them myself. I've been there for work a couple of times since since all this is. Yeah, gone you down. always would te- you know report on it back, to, and it always sounds terrible. There's there's month long waiting lists for for treatment that are getting longer, uh, and so predictably, politicians, community groups, they are calling for. Measure 110 to be not modified, but replaced with tough fentanyl possession laws and, um, you know, more arrests while um, supporters of the measure are still calling for more time. And the reason they're calling for more time is actually kind of interesting. The whole Prop 110, um, the resources for treatment and everything from Prop 110 were supposed to have been funded from, um, from New York, from a tax on on Oregon's sale of marijuana. So by some estimates, there's been $300 million raised from right. the sale of marijuana in Oregon that was supposed to be redirected to towards say, treatment. That's supposed to be put in that direction. For some reason, some confluence of political, social, and other kind of reasons, that money is just beginning to start flowing into treatment. Um. So... And not all of it's going to going to make it there, right? Because you know everybody's got to dip their beak and yep. peel a little off the top for whatever pet project there is. But um, the resources that are out there, there are groups out there that are doing the work that are trying to get people into treatment, but there is nowhere to send them. So even if they call this hotline and say, you know what, I'm sick of this shit, I want to get off the street, unless they're like pregnant or about to you know, lose a limb or something, there literally are no beds available for these people. Yeah. So, you know, you have to, you have to do this shit smartly. You can't do it like half-assed. Like They like, probably you know. should have had a facility built and ready to go before decriminalizing. I mean, if you could go back in time and have unlimited leeway and money, of course, which they didn't, you would build something like that. You would have it all ready to go so that when... The person gets the ticket. You can say, you know, with this ticket, you must, you know, at least go visit with um, maybe an intake person mm-hmm. and um, and look over your options, you know. And then maybe you could get, at least it's there. It's not like, here, call this number and see what happens and hope for the best. Because right. it sounds like there's nothing for them to do that would be helpful. Right. And even the police officers who are in charge of patrolling downtown... Um, you know, they, they know a lot of these folks. They've seen them for years. Yeah. And, you know, they interviewed one cop in this article who said he Narcan's somebody like twice a day, yes. at least. Like, you know, not the same guy, but at least <laughs> twice on a shift he has to use Narcan yeah. and extrapolate that over the number of police officers that that, um, that are patrolling that kind of that part of Portland. And, you know, you get an idea of how, how crazy it is out there. Um, you know, um, so the cop is like, you know, a big part of his job is he's, is writing these Measure 110 tickets. Um, and he's like, hey, you can't smoke meth or fentanyl on the sidewalk or in the playground. And the pushback we get, he says, people can be really aggressive. They think they're in the right because they think drugs are legal. Um, so they say, the cops say to them, well, beer is legal, but you can't drink beer in public. So we cite them and give them the drug screening card. Then they'll say they don't want treatment or they'll tell us, okay, I'll call the number. And two hours later, we run into them again and they're smoking or even overdosing. So... Um, Oddly, what, what they do do um, now, what they continue to do is they, uh, they still write tickets for open containers down there. Like you can, <laughs> you can be smoking um, 
fentanyl off of a piece of tinfoil and the cops will ignore you. But if you're standing next to them drinking a beer, you get a ticket that carries more of more of a fine. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a very rough situation. And hopefully now that the money is, is starting to flow, there'll be enough public um, support that this thing can be allowed to play out for a little longer. Because I really worry that what happens in Oregon, people are just going to look at Oregon and they're going to say, Jesus Christ, you know, look how badly this failed there. What we really need to do is do what we've always done and, and round people up and put them in jail. Yeah, it, and it's it feels like we're just spinning plates and, you know, you drop one thing and pick up another. And I don't know, you sound to be like, you sound to me like you're hopeful that now that this money is starting to pour out, they can do something about it. But it is such a complicated scenario. And when you're dealing with a population of addicts who are resistant to getting better, it just compounds the uh, the problem. Yeah, but, you know, other places have found a way to manage the situation, right? Like a place like Portugal, which decriminalized all drugs in 2001, um, they, you look at their statistics, significant decrease in drug-related crimes and disease transmission rate because they, had, they did it extremely carefully. They did it step-by-step. Step. They had the resources and the money in place before they pulled the trigger on decriminalization. And New York has a choice it has to make now. Is it going to follow like a Portugal-style uh, you know, decriminalization, or is it going to follow an Oregon-style decriminalization? Yeah. And I, I shudder to think what's what would happen in New York, where the population of drug users is orders of magnitude greater than it is in Portland, Oregon, yeah. if they just decriminalize everything. How and, much worse you is know, it going to What get? is it going to look like? Is, it, is the whole city going to, the Bronx going to look like Kensington? But yeah. I mean... <clears throat> I don't know. And on top of it, we've got the um, the migration crisis happening right now. I mean, you can't ignore what, what we're seeing right now. Um, and it's probably one of the reasons we're not able to focus on this kind of thing, because now we have a housing crisis. We have 100,000 people who have uh, fled uh, their country, you know, out of fear for their lives. And they're in New York. And so New York is losing their mind trying to oh, figure right. out it's the migrant thing is, is oh, a and this whole, is, adds a whole different dimension so now this is like this is the crisis right now so the, i feel like this stuff is taking a back seat while they're like what are we going to do uh how do we help all of these people um you know because new york has always been a a place where you know immigrants could come to and, and be able to start over and things like that but in these numbers so the mayor of new york Right now, that's all he's thinking about. And so this stuff, uh, I don't know who's focusing on it, but it's going to lead to a bad decision. I, I can't even imagine what New York would look like if it goes down to Portland. Because um, then there's absolutely no reason for anybody to, to stop or even try and conceal it. And it's just, there's, ugh. I mean, what happened with, um, with crack in New York is eventually it just sort of petered itself out. Um, so many people were arrested, went to, went to prison. The, the demographics changed. The population got older, um, you know, and crack use in New York is not a problem anymore, you know? And yeah, you don't hear about it. Anyway. Crack is not physically, I mean, it, it doesn't it's kill physically people. addictive while you're yeah. doing it. Well, that's the, the thing. Like with fentanyl, it's just like straight up killing people. It's not even like heroin was in the 60s and 70s, where when there was an overdose, it was kind of like, oh, wow, you know, uh, it wasn't just assumed. And now it's like you pick it up once. I mean, the children in the Bronx story, 
I mean, you think, how could that have happened? Even if there's just residue. Yeah. You know, in the Bronx story, they also, they said that they found uh, a pill press. Mm. So they have these pill presses to make fake, uh, I guess it's like fake oxy pills, which right. is strip pretty much just like fentanyl. So even just a little bit of a, on your skin, especially at that age, can kill you. So we're dealing with not just a drug of abuse, but it's literally a poison, like a very deadly poison that we can't keep uh we can't keep drug addicts away from which is uh compounding it so <laughs> maybe we need to do what singapore does and just execute. kill them yeah execute <laughs> drug dealers uh i mean strict drug laws in singapore did lower drug abuse rates you know yeah because they're dead <laughs> i don't think they killed them all <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you start killing people, you make an example out of one or two. And well, I mean, what are the arguments for a heavy handed enforcement approach, right? I mean, there, there's a public safety argument to be made. I mean, you keep dangerous drugs off the street, you protect public safety, um, you can lower use rates in, in, in some scenarios, right? I mean, you have a, um, a harsh enforcement, long prison terms have sometimes been successful in reducing the immediate availability of certain drugs and arresting certain individual distributors. The overall impact on long-term supply, of course, is debated. But, um, you know, I don't know. You can disrupt supply chains, with, but, you, but you need to... The beat-level cop should not be... Right, dealing with... Dealing with this shit. Right. I mean, you could go to the source they talk about... Where does fentanyl, you know, being shipped from? And then you're dealing with China. And then you have all the complex international and political minefields that you would have to navigate to, like, you know, treat it like a real war. You could, you know, send uh, Sidewinder missiles to fentanyl factories. You know, like, you really want to go for it, man. Fucking blow it all up. They can find it. It's not that hard to locate where this stuff is being. You know, they, they can read, you know, a newspaper from outer space um, in China. They can find the fentanyl factory. So if the America really wanted to take it seriously like it's a serious terrorist threat, maybe we have to call it a war on terrorism. Maybe fentanyl a, like, is a almost sleeper like cell. A, almost like a war on drugs. A real one, though, this time. <laughs> this is a war on drugs, not against the people in our country, but the, the countries that are just allowing this stuff to get shipped and uh, they have no um, you know if you see that in the news once in a while one of our presidents or or representatives will say we've gotten china to agree that they will shut down this one fentanyl factory or that they make these sort of that's bullshit it's bullshit and i think it's going to come to we have to treat it like when we were blowing up saddam hussein's you know weapons of pretend mass destruction like if we took a fraction of the energy we put towards that pretend stuff for actual factories full with drugs. Maybe, maybe that's a place to start. I don't don't know. know. I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to say as long as there's a demand, there will be somebody around to meet that demand, whether it be the Chinese, the Mexicans, anybody, right? Which is why you need a safe supply on top of it. So we pull it in, we get a safe supply that's regulated and available I'm just spitballing here, guys. I don't really think we should do this necessarily, but imagine a world in a world where we had a safe supply that was not killing people and we destroy all other ways of getting it in here with over the top military power, right? We right. just like point our military and then right. we bring it in, we get the tax revenue, we keep our citizens safe, and 
give them some good drugs. But doesn't that really, if, if you're getting tax revenue off it, doesn't that really sort of incentivize the government to keep a certain amount of people addicted to this stuff? Well, they do, so it, they they do keep... it with coffee, mm-hmm. they do it with cigarettes. Are those good examples? They do it with pornography. Should we be following those examples with a, yet another uh, drug? If it means less dead teenagers, maybe. So, so maybe I'm just a cynical Marxist, but my thinking is you should do something to reduce the desire for people to do do these drugs in the first place. Wow, that is... Like uh, providing economic opportunities, like solving the housing crisis, like give, paying a living wage to people. That sounds hard. Like increasing the minimum wage to a point where, you know, people can have dignity of work and work... But but, but but there, there's no missile for that. No. What? There's no... No, there's defen- no, no defense counts, contractors are going to be enriched. But, uh, but there's no Moab to drop on that. <laughs> And this is why, ultimately, I guess I'm a cynic uh, because I don't think I, I don't think without addressing the supply side, the the demand issue, which you can only really do by giving people positive alternatives to doing drugs, um, you're really going to make much headway. I mean, if Oregon if Oregon's decriminalization isn't the answer, and New York's harsh uh, arrest and incarceration uh, war on drugs thing from the '80s isn't the answer. Then is there an answer? Maybe there is no answer I, under the current economic capitalist system. Think, we have no answer. I think you're right because the the current economic system, with the capitalism, it, it sort of has a baked in need to feel good at the end of a shitty day because the things that we do to earn enough money to function in this uh, capitalist utopia, I put in air quotes. Um, people need to feel good. That's why alcohol is so celebrated. What's happy hour? You're only happy after work when you're drinking. Happy hour. I mean, this is just built into our society. So the whole feel good or to take something to enhance your time, like you can't unlearn that. I mean, it's generational. It'd have There's to be- plenty of countries that, that have, uh, you know, I mean, alcohol will always exist, okay? And it's always going to be associated with Since celebration Noah crushed of the, the grapes world. on the beach after his uh, son found him naked and drunk. It's my favorite story of uh, it's a after good the biblical flood. Story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, fucking dogs, man. They have not stopped. They're really mad. I don't know what they're mad at. They're angry at the capitalist, the unfair <laughs> capitalist system that we find ourselves in. But I mean, America seems like it's a, 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 here at the at the, at the at the waning of the empire. It seems like a particularly desperate place. I mean, how do you get from wanting to come home after work and throw back a couple of Colt forty fives or whatever your poison is to meditating to <laughs> you know to to then doing fentanyl? Wow. Well, like, I, mean, I, I get you want to relax after work, but and and I get that a f- dose of fentanyl is apparently only three bucks. Yeah, but, it's cheaper. Um, but like, what? What's the thought process there that says, you know, this life sucks so bad. I, there, I don't see any future for me or my family. So I'm going to check out and use fentanyl. I think a lot of times it's a, it's a it's a gradual decline into that sort of like you don't start out having a drink and the next move being smoking fentanyl, you know, off of a tin foil with a you know an empty pen tube or something it's usually from what i can tell i mean there's lots of different ways to get there 
But for the person who's, you know, a lot of times they're blaming well, doctors for the opioids and then trauma, taking it. right? Yeah. There's trauma too. And the pain. Right. So, Why the pain? Well, I mean, a lot of this trauma is maybe from growing up in uh, neighborhoods where you, the parents were drug abusers. Maybe they were the crackheads back in the 80s and the 90s and they weren't, you know, and then this is generational trauma yeah. or it's trauma that, you know, when people don't see hope, when they have no hope, they don't see a future and they can't wrestle with the the demons of the past in a healthy way. It just sets this thing up to, to run wild across the country. I mean, this whole like legalization of weed, which I, I, you know, I'm not in favor of putting people in prison for smoking weed, but I, but I really, I'm, it's, it's fascinating to me to watch how weed culture is now just sort of subsumed everything. Yeah. Like they're like, it's everywhere. it's everywhere. And you give, so like, do you, when you give people carte blanche, when you give them access to stuff that'll take, alter their consciousness and take them away from their day-to-day life. They're just going to grab it and they're going to do it. And the, the, the shittier society is, the, the less opportunity economically uh, there are, like people just drive right into that stuff because yeah. the alternative is difficult. It's really hard and people don't like doing hard shit. No, you know? I know I don't. Yeah, I don't either. But, you know, I had a, a brilliant idea that <laughs> I thought it was a brilliant idea at some point that may actually Makes sense here. What I mean, there's obviously no like snap your fingers and this is better. But no. one of the things I've noticed over the past, you know, since COVID is that things like um, uh, telehealth for uh, therapy, uh, psychologists, you can get like, it seems like therapy and talking about your feelings and doing that kind of work is way more acceptable. These if you days. have the money. Well, that's the first part. Right. So the next step, I think... Um, I had this thought the other day that, you know, every child is basically expected and required to see a pediatrician from the day they're born. I think that this should also be the case with uh, a therapist, like a pediatric psychologist, that when they begin school, this should be a checkup. There should be... Like a mental health checkup. And and if you start a whole generation getting used to those sorts of... Uh, talking about those things and thinking in ter- you know turning inward in a positive way, you could raise an entire generation of people who are introspective and and, and as a result maybe think about the future yeah uh, in a better way and so you know maybe we maybe our generations are lost you know and we just need to figure out a way to start fresh with this next generation of kids who who seem to be in a better spot to get the help um, and get support. And you don't have to be crazy. We come from a generation uh, where if you went to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, you were considered crazy. Not only that, if you did, you wouldn't tell anybody. I know I'm speaking for myself. I would have been embarrassed mm-hmm. to say, yeah, true. Uh, I'm weak. I have to go see a psychiatrist because I'm crazy. And this is the way it would, I at least felt it was perceived. And I think we're, our society is in such a place where that's not quite it anymore. I think a lot of people are more open to these sorts of things. So why not get uh, the next generation of kids who are already going to be more exposed to mental health treatment? Like, let's make this pediatric psychology, like, right along with your next appointment after your annual checkup. I think that's an excellent idea, Nat. You should be writing public policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to learn how to spell. First. You got to figure out how to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Access to healthcare. Marijuana is a, taxes. Is an issue, right? Tax to marijuana, or I hate these sin taxes because yeah. you have to the sin so-called tax. sin taxes because <clears throat> it presupposes that you you're gonna 
at some point there's an economic incentive to, for people to continue to use these things, you know, in order to take that money and use them to help people who overuse them. Mm. It's like, it just seems like circular crazy shit to me. Well, it's sort of like retirement uh, plans when you, you have these, um, where you're paying into a pension for a certain number of years, mm-hmm. and then you no longer pay into it, but you're paying into it to care for the next generation of workers and your pension was basically paid for right. by the people before you but everybody so. forgets that and then they fucking yeah. bitch and moan about yes it. i know like it's yeah. <laughs> yes but it could be something like that i mean i get it though like it's the same thing with you know you hear people sometimes say the reason there's no cure for cancer is because they make more money on the treatment now i, I agree with some of that could be true i mean it would make sense i'm not saying it's overt i'm no. saying like the structures arise when you when you create an economic incentive like yeah. that that make it more likely that you're going to continue to spend money in one way mm-hmm. that may not be the most effective way than it would be for you to spend the money in the way that's most effective to resolving the problem just right. to keep the money flowing because people are making money cash flow that's why you can't have fucking health care with profit you need universal <laughs> government funded health <gasps> that's really the only answer perish the thought how could you you commie. <laughs> what can I say? And you're wearing red for the record. I'm wearing my Russian. Uh, is that a hammer and sickle? or This what is my is Russian uh, anti-drinking propaganda <laughs> shirt from the <laughs> Soviet Union days. Yeah. <laughs> Did I get a picture of that? Anyway, let me get a picture of his uh, Soviet Socialist Republic shirt. So, it? yes, I'm dealing with a commie here, but have no fear. I am a capitalist, everyone. All right. <laughs> Don't fear the capitalists. Compassionate capitalism. Capitalists only want I believe in. the best for you. <laughs> Compassionate capitalism. That, just my pet peeve there. Mm. You ever go to a Whole Foods lately? Now, supposedly, while, yeah. you know, um, the, the founder of Whole Foods, Mackie, Bill Mackie, I think his name is whatever. Jeff Bezos. He, he wrote, yeah. well, now he's the owner, but he wrote a book called Conscious Capitalism. And every time I stand, and it, and it's all like how... You know, we can have a capitalism that that's kinder and gentler. It sort of reminds me of like the George Bush compassionate thing. of conservatism, you know, conservatives. Yeah. But um, you know, I walk into a Whole Foods and I look around and all I see is uh, lettuce wrapped in giant plastic clamshells, and I think of how much of that fucking plastic is going to end up in the Pacific Ocean, and I'm thinking. Where's the conscious capitalism there? Like, mm. <clears throat> how about packaging stuff in biodegradable? Things, you know. Or maybe it's recycled plastic, had you considered that? Yeah, it's not, though. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. How do you know? Because <laughs> I shop at Whole Foods. <laughs> None of it is recycled. <laughs> so make sure you recycle. I don't think we're solving this one today, though, unfortunately. But tell us how you feel. Does anyone have the answer to this one? <laughs> if they do, let us know. Yes, let us know, and then we'll take credit for it. So I have one more uh, little story. I don't know if you if we haven't taken a break yet. Do we want to, or do we just want to motor through? Um, let's motor through, even though I have to. Yeah, okay. I got to go, too. Sorry, okay. there will be no music this week. And we'll be... <laughs> Wait, Wait, all right, we're going to hold through? on to it. No, let's go right through. We're going to push through. Okay. And let's do it. Recovery in the News, part two. Part two. Uh, Los Angeles Times this week. Uh, article in the sports section. Uh, worst gift. On Miguel Cabrera's farewell tour, question mark, a bottle of wine for a recovering alcoholic. Yeah. Yes. The Oakland Athletics are being criticized over the gift they presented to soon-to-be-retired Detroit Tigers, 
Tigers star Miguel Cabrera on Thursday before the series opener between the teams. They gave the 21-year veteran a bottle of wine, which could be considered a lovely way to honor a player who is a member of the 3,000 hit and 500 home run club. A two-time American League MVP, four-time AL batting champion, and the only Triple Crown winner in Major League Baseball since 1967, except for the fact that Cabrera spent three months in an alcohol abuse treatment center in 2010 and faced legal issues involving alcohol in 2009 and 2011. Still, none of that stopped the Athletics or the Astros or the Chicago White Sox or the Miami Marlins from presenting him with alcohol to commemorate his career. Wow. So, and it was only an $80 bottle of wine. Huh. That's it. It was a Camus uh, Cabernet, which are excellent. I would let them breathe, but... Uh, I would prefer a Chateau Nerf to pop myself. Oh. That's Nerf? Nerf. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> it's the, like, ninth house of the Pope Nerf or something. Pop. Nerf yeah. de pop. Um, so what do you think about that? Did somebody just not do their homework? Or? I think not only did nobody do their homework, they don't care, and that's all there is to it. They don't do their homework. They don't give a shit. And they're just making empty gestures, basically. Nobody's paying attention. Um, And look, that happens to me probably as an alcoholic, a recovered alcoholic, recovering, however you want to pronounce it. People will do that. And I'm always like, I'm the type of person that says, I don't expect everyone to be privy to all this stuff. Even though I'm pretty, it's pretty obvious I don't drink and, uh, you know with everybody we know and I'm hoping most of my friends and acquaintances alike would probably not think to get me a bottle of wine but it happens you know people will say here you go this is great congrats I take the gesture as a kind gesture albeit you know a little bit ignorant or you know unresearched but it sucks and because that's just birthdays and like congratulations this is the guy's career you'd think somebody on these staffs would be like, hey, guys, maybe not the best thing. Yeah. Maybe we get him a Soberlink device. Yeah. I mean, what's the thinking like? <laughs> well, now that the career is over and you don't have to perform anymore, you can start drinking again. Time to get wasted. <laughs> you could be sitting on that rocking chair wishing you were playing. So have a bottle of wine. Yeah. I don't know. I've I've been sober for four years and my Everybody at work knows it, and I still get bottles of wine for Christmas. Yeah. It's it's just almost, like a lazy gift. It is. It is. Or people come to your home, they bring a bottle of wine. We don't let people come to our home. Yeah, it's you true. hear those dogs? Yeah. yeah well, what am I going to have people in the house? Well, that's why we have to go out to dinner. I think that's we're right. due for, for yeah, a night out. We're due for one. We're going to try one of those new oh, restaurants. I got a, I got a place. What? There's a, this high-end Mexican mm. that opened in, uh, you know where the hibachi place is in Plainview? That shopping center over there where yes. all music is. Yes. Uh, you know where Cassis used to be? I, he closed Cassis. Cassis a is a wonderful in, French restaurant. Good good place, but mm. it's been replaced by uh, a Mexican place called Frida's. Mm. And um, Aaron, myself, and, and Benjamin went there last Friday. Does Frida sit Quite with good. you? <laughs> no, but her posters are all, oh, her pictures are you all mean around the, the Frida Kahlo, yeah. Frida. Speaking like, of com- good communists. Like Bert and Ernie. Yeah. What, was it Ernie that looked a lot like Frida, or was it Bert? It was Bert. Bert was yeah. the Frida. Yeah. She was a handsome woman. Handsome. Yes. <laughs> She's some jawline. <laughs> but uh, that's she was good. Uh, she was quite quite a communist. Indeed. Indeed. Mm. Um, so anyway, that's it's our good next food, date. but that's where we should go. Agreed. All right. So uh, that's it. We're done. Yeah. Okay. Rock and <laughs> roll, guys. Um, I might have something else. Oh, is there a week in weird? 
There may be. Tell me. A week in weird. Yeah. Week in weird. Finally, motherfucker. So I was thinking this morning that we should have a week in weird. And I haven't exactly gotten my, I talked about a little paranormal investigation video I was producing with Noah at my The Haunted As It Grew Up. And we're not quite there yet. So I thought I would give us, because we are in spooky season right now. And those of you may be noticing that there is a certain chill in the air, depending on part of the country you're in. And this is the time, the liminal space between summer and winter, there's Mm. fall, and things start to pop through the veil. And so here, um, I found a story on Coast to Coast AM. Ah, uh, is it by, you know who? And it is (laughs) Ghost Bike Films. In British City, and it's always a question mark. Is this Tim Banal? So there may have it been... It is Tim Banal? By Tim Banal. Right. <laughs> An odd piece of footage from England shows a riderless bicycle roll across the street, and some suspect that... And some suspect, not a suspect, that it was being propelled by a ghost. Of course. <laughs> Who else? Though not everyone is convinced that the incident was paranormal in nature. The spooky scene was reportedly captured last week by a security camera overlooking a medieval road in the city of Yorktown known as The Shambles, which is now a popular marketplace. In the footage, which we will put in the show notes, the no, baron <laughs> the baron bike emerges out of a side street and crosses a cobblestone road before hitting a curb, which causes it to topple over on the ground. Much like many potential ghost videos that wind up posted online, the response to the strange scene has been largely mixed. <laughs> Given that York is considered one of the most haunted locations in England, many viewers have posited that some kind of spirit was responsible for the bicycle's course, eerie course, ride, course. with some suggesting that it could be connected to an infamous apparition known as the Lost Boy, who has been seen in the city multiple times. However, the way in which the bike suddenly appears from an adjoining street that is just off camera has led more skeptical observers to argue that it could have just simply been pushed by a person in the hopes of (laughs) fabricating such a ghostly moment. With that in mind, what's your take on the footage? Check it out. Um, Uh, My take is that it's good advertisement for that market, so somebody created a ghost situation. I'm looking at it, and that's definitely a bike piloted by a ghost boy. Uh, Okay. I noticed you're not showing it to me. No, no, you don't need to see it. You're just going to have to trust me on this one. So that is our first week in Weird of Spooky Season. Submit your... Haunted stories. I know some of you out there may have also encountered ghosts, poltergeists, werewolves, sasquatches. If those stories could involve UFOs, drug use, <laughs> yeah, and alcohol use at the same time, we would greatly appreciate you calling and leaving a story on the hotline. Weak and weird. Well, that about does it for today. I know I had a good time. Did you? I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted too, but that was fun. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us at middleagesrecovery.com, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, and Twitter. So, tweet us at what you twit. Support your favorite show. Please drop a five-star review on uh, Apple Podcasts. is a great one. We will read your review if you leave a good one, a funny one. look to see if we had any new ones. Keep it pithy. Um, we love meeting the new monsters and chopping it up in the Facebook group. So, search Recovery in the Middle Ages on Facebook, and you can find our private group. Where well, we are recovering together. One other thing right. before I forget, um, 
You remember we had Jiva from Bhakti yeah. Recovery on? She has her own podcast now. That's right. It's a good podcast. Her first three guests have been really interesting. It um, takes a really broad, holistic view of recovery from a spiritual perspective. So if that's your jam, you know, I suggest you get on there and check it out. Jiva G. And... Join us on the Inner Sanctum. Guys, this is our, our Patreon. This is how you support the show. How we, we keep the lights on. Go to patreon.com slash recovery in the Middle Ages. We've got a private Discord chat group where we're all having a good time. There's free merch that comes at you and um, future possibilities of extra content. And finally, <laughs> the best way to help the show is to share it with a friend. If you get something out of our little show... Please share the love and help grow the RMA movement. And as we say, non proficit perfecto. Progress, not perfection. We'll see you next time. Be good. Oh, Mr. Wide Awake drives a big old Chevrolet.